This is Transcend with Nat, where we're discovering our higher purpose and sharing stories and awarenesses along the path of transcendence. Welcome to Transcend with Nat. This is Nat. I'm your host, and I'm going to get into this interview I did with Lee Taylor Young. But first, I'm going to be interviewing her husband very shortly uh, from the time this episode is released. And so if any of you have um, any questions, her husband is John Morton. He is the spiritual director of the Movement of Spiritual Inner Awareness, the chancellor of the University of Santa Monica, and um, an author and if you have any questions for John that you would like me to ask, uh, please feel free to write me at nat at transcend.online. And you can also uh, contact me through the contact form at transcend.online. All right. Well, let's get into this interview. Today, I have uh, the pleasure of having Lee Taylor Young on my show. When I asked her um, about introducing her, she said, how about just me? So, <laughs> But she's also an award-winning actress, Emmy award-winning actress, and you were nominated for a Golden Globe too, right? Yeah. And uh, was a United Nations Goodwill ambassador, uh, an ambassador for the movement of spiritual inner awareness, and is has an incredible story in life um and if you know if you've been listening you know that i love stories so this might be a storytelling session uh in the end um but she's also a, an aspiring author yes indeed <laughs> and uh, working on that let's say she's an artist oh that's that that feels good so welcome lee thank you nat my friend so one of the things that um, that kind of sparked this is the other week we were together and you showed me this book. Was it about the 70s or the oh, 60s? Yeah. Uh -huh. the, um, oh, it was about the movies of the 70s. The movies of the 70s. Mm -hmm. And you had written the foreword to the book um, and you were telling the story about how you were sitting next to Steven Spielberg when they were when it was the premiere for E.T., uh, which, as we know, became a massive hit. But at the time, it was probably Stevens, one of his early uh, movies, big production movies. So I'm sure he was a bit nervous. But anyway, I thought the story was incredible. So maybe you can share that here, even sure. though you did it in that foreword. Uh-huh. Um you know, it, I should remember the name of that book that I just wrote the foreword for, but I'm going to find it in a moment because it's really good. It's about all the movies of the 70s. And my foreword was, because I worked a lot in the 70s in film, uh, was my take on what happened to film. And then I'll get to Stephen. Sure. Because Stephen was, Spielberg, was a tremendous emerging genius in my humble opinion in the 70s yeah. of the innovation that began to take place in film that was much less available in the 50s and the 60s it was still yeah. the studio system mm -hmm. still a lot of control about content and all of a sudden the 70s first of all the independent film market exploded and um 
that was Sundance mm -hmm. and all of a sudden there was an independent market making a movie for under a million dollars when that was unheard of. And um, so it exploded the film industry to movies that were more edgy, more politically incorrect, mm -hmm. more challenging in terms of taking on society, taxi driver, uh, from Harold and Maude to yeah. uh, Scorsese's movies. And out of that as well came George Lucas and then Steven. They were young, really young, and as, as were all the others. And here's Steven, you know, he's doing uh, Close Encounters, he's doing E.T. And the particular circumstance of that evening that I was sharing with you was, and wrote about in the foreword, was my husband at the time was his agent. Mm -hmm. and had really been at the helm of guiding his career into what he was becoming. And, you know, he was uh, a, a kind of a student film auteur, if you will. Uh, he was getting more and more involved with what today I would call guerrilla filmmaking, yeah. which you pick up the camera and go, and you don't need 35 millimeter, you know, and you don't need a crew of 120. Um so Stephen, my husband at the time, was was guiding him into the bigger picture. And so when I knew Stephen, he was in my life uh, pretty constantly from um, Close Encounters time, Jaws time, mm -hmm. uh, E.T. Well, wow, this was, yeah. this was like full emergence. And just the story alone, uh, and there's several books been written on how he made the movie Jaws yeah. when literally anything that could go wrong, <laughs> it seemed went wrong. The, the shark didn't work. Yeah. You know, the crews were out on boats for days and days, <laughs> felt like months and months trying to get a fake shark to work, you know, yeah. and, but he made, and then his choice, I forget, please forgive me to this gentleman. Cause he's was one of Steven's great, a music man who did his scores for all his movies. He's so famous. And he came up with this idea of the sound to be the precursor that in the water there might be something that could mm -hmm. kill you. That Do you remember that? Yeah, da da That's Much better than me. <laughs> so this particular night uh, was the premiere of E.T., and it was at the Cinerama Dome that still existed at that time, Hollywood and Vine. Mm -hmm. And my husband, his agent, was on my left, and to my right was Stephen. And um, I don't know if Stephen was much more than 30 at the time, and he'd, he took an enormous risk on E.T. Yeah. Um, you know, he had no idea. Very full audience. And the movie, the little... Sweetie T goes over the moon, I think, something mm -hmm. like that at the end. And I took his hand because I knew he was nervous because he was my friend. And he just squeezed it really hard. He was just looking at the screen because now the lights were going to go off and we would know how the response was. Yeah. There was this just deafening silence. Oh, my God. It was utter utter silence. <laughs> and his oh, no. hand <laughs> squeezed mine harder. And then all of a sudden, like a tsunami, this wave of sort of a thunderous response of people suddenly standing and the cheering didn't stop. It was just phenomenal. And, you know, and the, he's a 
tremendously sweet man. Mm -hmm. And the look on his face was just so precious, priceless, overjoyed. And uh, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. And the innovation of it was the sweetness, the oneness, the world that we're all looking at now of those two fingers touching. We know... Michelangelo did in the Sistine Chapel, you mm-hmm. know, how do how does God and man become one and how do how does the foreign alien yeah. become one? How do you connect to something that's that's foreign? One, that's foreign. That's yes. Not part of your normal life. And it's in the heart yeah. and in the movie that's what it was demonstrating through the eyes of children and we do have a vocal accompaniment through my cat here yeah, that's <laughs> <know> okay. <laughs> uh, but you know it was such an amazing movie and i found the same uh potency in um close encounters of course yeah. and what was really interesting is there was one ending at close encounters i think you and i might have spoken about this at my wedding to the the agent who mm-hmm. guy mcelwain who was uh steven's agent and Stephen and Alan Ladd Jr. were sort of like the best men of the wedding. And we were married at Natalie Wood's house, Natalie and RJ. Yeah. And John Roger, my spiritual master teacher uh, and very best friend, um, did the wedding. And of officiated course. Officiated the wedding. And, you know, officiated yeah. the wedding. Yes. Thank you. And uh, he ended up speaking to Stephen about the end of the movie where at the end of the movie, you don't see any exchange. Yeah. You know, between, let's say, the other, the alien and the people. Mm-hmm. And he said, would you ever consider maybe going back and, you know, completing that ending, doing like a, another ending? Well, Stephen did. Oh, wow. Now, would I like to consider it was John Roger's <laughs> <laughs> suggestion? But in the director's cut, which he went back and did... Wow. He had the people coming off and this enormous sense of congruence, compassion, oneness uh, between the scientists and yeah. the UFO. And it was so moving. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's so funny to because I've I was around JR enough to see how he would just inspire and affect different people. Um who he just came across in mm-hmm. his ordinary like part of his life and and how they took that inspiration and whether it was known that it is coming from him or not you know he just seemed to have that that aspect of energy that would that would translate to to creative people mm-hmm. um, and so it, it's interesting as you're telling the story a lot of what i'm hearing in it is really the discussion of taking risk um, and mm-hmm. it, it sounds like you were probably giving you around a lot of creative people through your life, mm-hmm. around a lot of risk takers. Um, so what's your, and, and I'm sure you've probably seen risk takers take those risks and fail at times and it just right. doesn't work too. Um, so what's your, what's your thoughts? What's any stories that come to mind when I bring that up or, or thoughts about risk taking and, and the, how it works and how it doesn't and how that's part of the creative process? Well, the the gentleman that came to my mind was I worked for Ted Turner for three years. Okay. And I mean, being around Ted as I was quite a bit during that time, 
I mean, you were in the presence of a risk taker. Yeah. I mean, if you think that his background uh, did not necessarily have a direct arrow to CNN as a creation. Yeah. His father made signs, mm -hmm. you know, the big signs you might see on a road. Yeah. Um, but he loved media. Yeah. And so what, did, what does he create in due time? The steps, I don't know. When I knew Ted, CNN was already exploding across the planet um, and and yet had not even exploded as far as it was. This was the early 90s. Yeah. Um, and just a remarkable consciousness to his deepest intention as I witnessed it was to bring people together from all opposite sides of any subject. Mm -hmm. um, he was deeply interested in the Russians. Mm -hmm. uh, he wanted to be part of the Russian uh, goodwill, whatever they were, games. He put a lot of money into it yeah. to create bridges. Mm -hmm. So if we look at CNN, what did CNN do to us? It created, you know, 24-hour-a-day news, but it also became global. So yeah. our, our comprehension of the world as we knew it just exponentially just exploded with CNN. And then I worked with him for something like Captain Planet. Mm -hmm. He cares so much about uh, being good caretakers of this earth. Yeah. And the um, Better World Society was the organization I was working with mm -hmm. out of New York out of which he created Captain Planet, which was a cartoon figure who I think was kind of dead, <laughs> uh, but, but this wonderful animated character who, who, whose superpowers were based on how can we heal the planet. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I can't remember which I did. I think I went from that to working as a goodwill ambassador for the environment at the UN for Dr. Noel Brown, who was a very good friend of Ted's. Yeah. I think Ted introduced me to Noel. Noel said, do you want a job? I said, absolutely. <laughs> because the Better World Society, which also was very dedicated to making um, sustainable media, in other words, media that would go on and be inspirational. Mm -hmm. Ted was absolutely determined to bring media that was going to educate, uh, in a sense, donate itself to the upliftment of the consciousness of the planet to take care, to be good caretakers, yeah. that we are all connected. I mean, yeah. he was very big on that. On the other hand, as a personality, oh my God. <laughs> uh, I, I, there, I, there's only one of Ted. I mean, some stories I can't tell, you know. But uh, he did this thing that was extraordinary in Atlanta. He created a symposium of who he saw to be the four, 40 most significant uh, people who were affecting other people on the planet yeah. to good. Yeah. So in those 40 people, Al Gore, I think this was, I'm trying to think what year this was. Gosh, I'm guessing, let's say 96, okay. 97 in there. Right around the time John Rogers' book, You Can't Afford the Luxury of a Negative okay. Thought, thought yeah. um, came out. And out of the blue, I get this invitation from Ted. And he'd chosen me as one of the 40. Wow. And I sort of wanted to call him up and say, 
you sure he didn't send it to the wrong address? <laughs> but, you know, he was intent. He wanted me there. The head of the CIA, Jimmy Carter, head of Discovery Channel, who became a very close friend of mine, John Hendricks, the head of Nickelodeon, Jim Henson, mm-hmm. uh, with all he did to bring kind of love through yeah. uh, the Muppets. Um those are the names that come to my mind, but there were 40 more may come. What I did was I asked John Roger if he would sign 40 copies of You Can't Afford the Luxury of a Negative Thought, and I took them with me. Oh, wow. And I gave them to everyone there as a gift. (laughs) And just the other day, I was going through my files, Mm -hmm. and I found, you know, the most beautiful letters from Jimmy Carter, from Jim Henson, who died not too long after that, of a very strange and sudden pneumonia. Yeah. And uh, Jim Henson said in his note, he said, and then I received this book, and I thought to myself, looking at the title, now why does Lee think I need this book? (laughs) 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 And then I opened it, and I went, oh, my God. Yeah. Everyone needs this book. Yeah. And he just went on and on thanking me for it. And it was an extraordinary three days of conversation. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, there was a dinner. And my job was to introduce Ted. So uh, I was also to give a speech. Yeah. And to introduce Al Gore. Wow. So uh, I introduced Al Gore. I was so thrilled that I'd gotten it over with that I completely forgot. That you had to introduce Ted. Ted. <laughs> <laughs> How'd that go? <laughs> well, first of all, I, one of my dear friends who was involved with the event, still close friend today, was like waving at me. I thought, well, why is she waving? <laughs> I was so, uh, I think, out of my body in a sense. Finally, I got it, and I scrambled up there, and I introduced Ted, and he was so jovial and so delightful and uh, so wonderful, and uh, he had that drawl. Mm -hmm. And he spent five minutes talking as his precursor to when he really hit the ground running with what he had to say where it almost was like when he got to it, it was almost like your hair stood up. It was so impactful. But the preamble was all about the importance of a gentleman needed to carry a fresh hanky, not to give to a woman upon any moment of immediate need. So you had to be extra careful that your hanky was not filled with, quote-unquote, as he said it, snot. So you must (laughs) make, you know, you mustn't forget, and you must check your hanky all the time. And you wondered, where the heck is he going with this? (laughs) He's got an audience of the, you know, these people. And he's telling them about the hanky. And then... All of a sudden, it was like the whole thing shifted, and the ball fell in the slot, and there he was, and boy, you know, you left so inspired. It was kind of like that feeling when you feel, I'll lay my life down for this, yeah, because he hit you in that place of our oneness. And, you know, it's like that old Taoist saying, and I think it's Taoist, that if you pluck a flower on the other side of the planet— don't think it doesn't impact you, yeah. you know, that level of oneness. So those years were so glorious. Working for UNIP uh, was an extraordinary experience. UNIP's uh, 
environmental computers that were tracking the environment all over the planet. This is mid-90s. It was 30 acres of computers in Nairobi. So I would go there a lot. And already it was showing drought. It was like the planet was in drought, not approaching drought. We were in it, but nobody was talking about it. Hmm. So a lot of the information I had that uh, Ted as well shared with me, and he was very uh, nervous about it. He had this feeling the planet was going to fall apart. And and I remember we were at a, in a diner having breakfast, and he was running down a really dark doom and gloom view. Yeah. And I said, Ed, in my humble opinion, you're overlooking one piece for me that I think is the cutting edge moment. And that is when humanity gets it or whatever percentage of humanity gets it and rallies the human spirit, the human soul, when it lines up with purpose, uh, will change all this. And we have to have faith in that. And that's where we have to put our endeavor is towards that ignition. Into the goodness. Into the goodness, not into all that we could look at at any given moment, any of us, and be depressed because, and and Ted told me he had real issues with depression over the planet. Yeah. Um, What he ultimately ended up doing was retiring, buying up all hundreds and thousands of acres and planting them with environmental ecology, balance between animal and the plains, uh, grasses. And that's, that's what he's doing now. He's giving his life to something living. Yeah. And that's great. And and it's interesting you brought that up because just recently, um, someone was talking to me because they were working with someone who is very much into the environmental thing. And, and that person was just going into such a dark place with it all. Um, and and this person was asking me, well, what do you see? And and part of it to me is is that simple thing that that Jr. has said, and that that's something that just touched to me is don't lose in your fantasies. Yeah. You know, you're fantasizing about the future, and when you start fantasizing in this doom and gloom, it and goes in the like, field, and it goes into the field. And not only that, but you just you're pretending like you know something about the future because there's so many variables you don't know. Like you don't know what's what's going what's going on. I mean, there are people who you know, and there are times that I'm sure you and me and and others have had those experiences where you do see something that's that's going to take place. But but there's a lot of variables, and there's a lot of things that are outside of our you know small like mind ego awareness. Um, and so to pretend that you really know, and to pretend that you know that it's going to be terrible you know, you're just going to put more energy into it and just be a miserable person now. And then who wants to like listen to a miserable person? And you know, know, we look around our world right now and boy, is there a lot of opportunity to make the choice because I mean, it's a test because at any given moment, uh, you could just get caught in a snare of, of the doom and gloom. And, you know, again, it's winning in your fantasy, but also, uh, I consider it a real practice of choice. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to feel me 
easily I could do it. I'm, oh, I'm not so lacking easy. in intelligence. I could compute to the mm. negative effortlessly in my own internal computer. But, you know, you and I have made a, a, a great devotion and dedication to, I'll call it soul, we call it soul transcendence. This was John Rogers' teachings. And yeah. what what is the sort of byline in a sense of soul transcendence is look for the good in yeah. people and things, you know, and essentially leave all the rest to God. That's where I want to place my energy. Yeah. Is um, towards the good. I then you magnetize it. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm very aware that if I'm in a very positive frame of mind and I hold to it, not easy. Hold to <laughs> it as not a, easy. intention, mm-hmm. as a commitment that this is who I am. Mm-hmm. This is who Lee is. This is what I give my life to. This is what I give my practice to. And really make myself an astute observer of my own thinking. And boy, do I see where my judgments are. Yeah. I mean, just last week, I was working with a lovely person who I hired to help me do filing on a personality level. It's like, I, I she had worked for me for five years at one point for us as kind of a housekeeper helper. Never in my life had I fired anybody, ever. I just had yeah. f- fortunately never had to. In the in the year she was there, I fired her five times. <laughs> and when when I and I dearly love her, it's just a diva kind of personality that's like mm-hmm. oil and fire or whatever. And she worked for me last week, and I literally had to remind myself of my teaching just on a personality level. It's just yeah. you know my tolerance, and I had to say okay. Here's my test up close and personal. Yeah. What what choice am I going to make? Am I going to be patient, be a really clear com- communicator, which at one point included, I don't want you to talk to me right now, <laughs> 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 but lovingly, at least with respect. But we got through it beautifully, and she said, I know I talk too much. And I said, you know, it might be something to consider. (laughs) (laughs) But the joy of it really was, in retrospect, was that I'd give myself a B. Mm -hmm. I didn't get an A, you know, but I I got a good B, and it could easily have succumbed to a D or an E. So, but that's where I want to choose. Yeah. And I think we are in times that we're going to see more and more kind of a, an interesting dance of people who are not willing to work it yeah. and build the field. Build or the field, the he will come, yeah. you know, what that movie's about. Build it, that we are creators. We are creators. I want to claim it. Yeah. So what do I want to claim? My... My husband, there are times I look at him and I go on my knees. I want to go and just look up to heaven and say, thank you so much. This is the greatest teacher ever. I mean, I mean, there is no button left unturned Mm -hmm. or pushed. Uh And, and (laughs) I'm going, wow, God must have a lot of confidence in me. (laughs) But my perspective on it is, first of all, the love with us is so, so great. So spirit knows that there's a field that can contain the growth. Yeah. Because I think any hearty, good, healthy relationship is for growth. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and lots of good times. And then there's times that are very uncomfortable. <laughs> and then it's like the mirror's right in your face. It sure is. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so easy to point the finger. And yep. then it's, what is that great thing that, okay, where are all the fingers Three pointing? Three fingers pointing back at you when you're <laughs> Three pointing fingers. fingers, yep. And you know, I just decided one day, I remember I was in the garage wanting to just howl at the moon, going, you know what? I'm just going to stop complaining. And just see this for what it is, yeah. which is just the biggest blessing for my maturing ever. Yeah. And I, I feel I have a, a just a superlative marriage, you yeah. know, but, you know, I, I don't have blinders on. I, I, to the best of my ability, I'm just looking and saying, I just love this person so much. And that, you know, as time goes on, if you love them more, mm-hmm. it's really good. That's good. Yeah. That's good. I'm lucky. Yes, yes. And <laughs> but I I I I I I I shuff up my sleeves and put on some gloves once in a while and say, Okay Lee, yeah, you've got some growing to do. And and for me sometimes it's that there's that moment where it's like, I created this. Right. And now Nat, why would you do that? <laughs> I guess I was bored. I don't know. <laughs> You know, I, I, I often felt, and friends have reminded me, looking back at a pretty, uh, I mean, really, even I, going through my files this last week, w- this particular person who was helping me said, did you live all these lives? And I said, I know, I'm a little impressed myself. But they said, you know, how how did you make it through all the lows? Yeah. And I made it through all the lows with spirit. Yeah. You know, the Holy Spirit, God, our traveler, JR, Jesus, yeah. all the big guys, yeah. you know, who carry the loving. Yeah. Because loving is the way to get through it all. And I don't always think it's an easy choice. No, it, it's not always an easy choice. And it's a daily choice. It's, yeah. a, it's a constant choice to choose that. As you've, you've been saying, it, it becomes... Um, it becomes this daily practice of choosing into that more, the more positive, the more you can, uh, and, and choosing. One thing I remember JR talked about was how, you know, we, we create mental pollution, psychic pollution. Um, and so really part of that is keeping your fields cleared and, and working on, on yourself. Um, and it's not about being, Pollyanna-ish or like trying to ignore that there are things that could be improved or changed or uplifted, upgraded in this world, in our lives um, and working towards that. Uh, But it's being practical. And a lot of that to me is about being in the moment because it's easy like to go in the doom and gloom if we go down that negative envisioning into the future versus just like, oh, well, there's something to deal with right now here. And what can we do to upgrade it to the best? You know, also when you were just saying that, my observation is, and I don't know why, that it's become more something I've understood in this last year and didn't know it earlier, but there you go, is that a negative thought is a magnet. It's Mm -hmm. literally a magnet for the next negative thought. It's sort of like a rabbit hole. And you don't realize it because it's like it can be a familiar terrain Mm -hmm. that maybe complaining lives in, maybe feeling like a victim, why me lives in. Yeah. uh, And they're subtle. 
they're not always like with big flags and yeah. <laughs> marching bands saying victim or yeah. why me or it's it can be very subtle like why is this happening to me rather than okay it's happening to me how do i handle it yeah you know i saw an ed wagner a great doctor his desk he's yesterday great. oh mm-hmm. he's the best it's not what you're looking at it's what do you see yeah and i so want, true. there you go uh yeah, that's some truth <laughs> right there. So just to uh, segue into a little different line here, what got you into or when did you realize there was something more for you in terms of like a spiritual experiences or or if there was like a one that w- that started it for you or maybe it was it was uh, something more holistic and, and gradual. Um, but if, if you have a story with that in terms of how you came to be, if you can call it a spiritual path, which, you know, or a spiritual life or just that awareness that, Oh, there's something maybe more to this. You know, I honestly feel I could say that I, I don't remember when I wasn't aware of it, even at, one year old or two. I mean, I have, I used to sort of shock my mother and tell my mother under one year old memories. And she wow. said, no, that's not quite pop. Where, where did you get that? I, I said, I don't know. I just kind of remember it. So I had a, a an acuity in my awareness mm-hmm. of very little that was much more aware or attuned or comfortable in aloneness, uh, silence, uh, being you know, wandering out in the neighborhood with a dog who was my best friend and just uh, experiencing rather than people seem to be for me very little like the greater oddity Mm -hmm. than uh, my own company, which very young, I was aware of other company. Yeah, You know, it wasn't anything I can ever remember seeing like I can see you now, but it was an awareness of a wholeness like I was surrounded, like I was, but I was in, living in bunting of some kind. Uh, and then if I saw something physically in the world that r- mirrored to me or reminded me of what I experienced in my awareness, I got all excited. Like my parents were agnostic. Mm-hmm. Um, they There was no religion or church. Uh, in fact, my mother was an early card-carrying communist. Oh, wow. So it wasn't... Uh, nurtured, yeah. Uh, but I had it anyway. So the 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 young people around me, or the people around me who ignited me, were my little Catholic friends because they had statues that glowed in the dark. They were really <laughs> lucky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just wanted one of those statues that one That's of those saints funny. that glowed in the dark because it was an objectification of what I understood inwardly. Yeah. But I couldn't process it. Sure. But I was drawn to it. One little friend had a little mirror with Jesus on the back of it w- holding lambs and I said, "Oh, that's my best friend." Oh, that's I can remember I still have that mirror. Oh, wow. But I don't have the mirror part. I just have the back. Uh and how I managed to keep it all these years, but it was my first recognition of who was with me. 
And I knew that. No one told me. I didn't go to church. But then I started asking my mother to take me any city we moved to. We moved so much. Yeah. I was. Why'd you move? My father was in the military. And after he came out of World War II, he was always looking for the next job. Mm Mm-hmm. So we would move to where the job was. So if it wasn't military as it was Air Force initially, Mm -hmm. and then FBI, then it was, you know, other jobs until we finally settled in Detroit, Michigan. Um, So I was very flexible by training of just pick it up and you're moving now. You're going to be in the middle of a new year in school, new friends, which actually rather than turn me into more of a social creature, Turned me the opposite. Yeah, I I I was very kind of scared of my peers. Uh-huh. Uh, they seemed to know what they were doing, yeah. <laughs> and I felt like I didn't have a clue. Yeah, and I was better off in my total ignorance about being a human being if I were in my room alone with a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At least I understood that. And that went on until, well, really until I decided in college that one of the best ways I could socialize myself, I didn't have close friends. My closest friend was my mother. I talked to my sister and brother, but I I didn't talk to my peers. I was 17. Now in college was to go into acting because at Northwestern University, meeting a friend one day in the acting theater school as they were up in the dark theater on doing Ibsen on the stage, I went, it was like Paul going to Damascus. Yeah. This is my calling. I can speak other people's words. Yeah. Other people's thoughts. And that would be a wonderful semi-hidden tool Mm -hmm. to allow me to interact with human beings. So I went all in and acting, and that was at 17. By the time I was turning 21, I was starring on Broadway. Wow. And my ship was launched and uh, gradually became more able to speak. And then when I came with Baba Muktananda as my first physicalized spiritual teacher of the Siddha Yoga Path Mm -hmm. in 1972, I think, wouldn't you know when people said, well, who do you want to present you at this event of a thousand people? He said, Mirabai, which is what he named me. Uh-huh. I want her to present me. And it was like, not me. <laughs> it's a really big mistake. Yeah. You know, he chose me every time. So funny. it was like, okay. So you were out in front. He was yeah. saying, that's where you're to go be. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And I, then, I, I began to learn. And then what was the transition from, from him to JR? How did that happen or was that like uh it just happened from him to jr did you do other spiritual teachers or paths or anything well prior to muktananda i'd been on a hearty search for at least 10 years okay uh and as someone said at that time no wonder you don't date you're only in love with dead men <laughs> you know, I was in love with Lincoln. I was in love with Yogananda. Uh-huh. I mean, I had I I was in love with Einstein. He was my first boyfriend. You know, to me, uh, when I was ten years old, and he passed away. And you know, I mean, wow. I just had all these iconic mm-hmm. men that I was so attracted to, but none of them were in a body. And uh, 
So yeah. slight, uh, slight difficult. It was slightly dating. difficult. I could study yeah, them yeah. and be ignited by them. That would be a dating app. Like how, <laughs> like uh, what dead person do you want to date today? <laughs> oh my God. I, I could, I could have the whole app. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so when I met Muktananda, I grew up with India as my second culture because my mm-hmm. grandfather who, uh, who was, uh, one of the heads of the Department of Agriculture in Washington. I was born in Washington. My mother worked for the Department of Agriculture. My birth father worked for the State Department. So I was immersed in Washingtonian and humanitarian views of the early 50s. Sure. And our home was sort of salon for gathering ambassadors. And so this became a very normal environment for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he became the head of the Ford Foundation in India, okay. and he was really a father figure. He was my first guru, my grandfather. Your grandfather. He was a, Jared later told me that I got my spiritual genetics yeah. uh, from him, his line, which makes sense to me. Uh, and he would discourse with me and teach me Socratically. And I was reading Socrates when I was 12, wow. not because it was in school, yeah. but because he never projected on me any limitation. Wow. He would say, I want you to go read Plato. And then we'll discourse tomorrow night in the chairs after everybody goes to bed. We did that for years. That is so cool. So he embraced me as an open book, and I responded in kind. Yeah. So I didn't respond according to the limitations of what this grade then leads to this grade, which leads to, he just bypassed the whole thing. Because I was a prolific reader, because I read before I spoke, um, he would just give me anything and yeah. said, what do you think chapter by chapter he's the one who gave me autobiography of a yogi oh, wow. when i was 12 years old when he came back from meeting yogananda he had a signed book oh wow and he gave it to me and he said i want you to read it well when i started to read that book i went oh i understand wow. what all that was when i was little yeah what that presence was experiences that i was having it made me feel a little less odd yeah. And then my grandfather would have me read a chapter, then we would talk about it. And so, and then he went to India, and then India was uh, very close to me. So it was very natural mm-hmm. to go to Muktananda, go to India, sure. go to an ashram, Shivananda ashram. Uh, met some Peter Sellers, led me to a first guru influence. Who was whose name was Venkatesananda, mm-hmm. who was the guru brother to Satchidananda, who was a great guru in the sixties in America. Okay. Uh, and another one, Vishnu Devananda, who did the great Hatha Yoga teaching in the sixties. And then Shivananda was their father guru, and I went to his ashram in the Himalayas. Okay. Had a lot of Christ experiences there, so spirit was working me like yeah. a pe- loaf of bread. I mean, yeah. I just was out there. So when I met Muktananda, I just said, and he init- initiated me. So I was deeply involved with him, and one day I had a, a total visionary experience where I saw him giving me away in marriage to someone else uh, in the sari that he'd given me I was wearing the man was in a western suit and I couldn't see him because his face was so full of light but the wedding ring he put on my finger was all purple light Oh wow! and a week after I had this experience I met John Roger Wow! and it was I was very much with Muktananda but now I've met 
Was he wearing his one of his classic Western shirts? Oh, my God. <laughs> when I met him first time and he walked into Prana, you know, which mm-hmm. was the center downtown L.A., my first time, so shy, I was hiding, you know, the divider between the two rooms. I was hiding behind it. That's so funny. Sally Kirkland, as John Roger enters the room, screams at the top of her lungs, there's that actress John Roger was telling you about. <laughs> And John Roger veered from the direction he was going into towards me as my brain is processing. His pants are too short, his socks are white, and he's wearing a polyester pullover. (laughs) 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 And I can't even see because there's so much light as he's coming towards me. So my brain was trying to cover all these bases, you know, and he came into me and sort of emerged after this. I mean, even to this day, I see the level of that light that couldn't quite see his face like in the experience and he reached his hands took my hand leaned in the twaji and softly and gently and warmly said welcome and inwardly i heard loud as that if outwardly which i also had to process i've been waiting for you wow and i wept through the whole seminar yeah both between massive joy where i felt like I was skipping in universes uh, to the tears of joy. And then the next day I went and met Polly McGarry Mm -hmm. and bought every John Roger tape and every book he had. And she carried out all the boxes to my car saying in her wry and divine way, you know, there is such a thing as spiritual indigestion. (laughs) 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 And so in, 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 in the near future, uh, I gave a reception for Baba in my home. I was approved to do it. It was a great honor. I called John Roger, quite confused about who am I with. Yeah. Said, John Roger, would you like to come? I'd love to come, he said. Awkwardly, I said, would you like a chair as high as Baba's? Yeah. And he laughed uproariously, <laughs> as only Jer could do. And he said, thank you, Lee. That's very kind. But I'll sit on the floor with everybody else. <laughs> so JR. And at the reception, he was on the floor in front of Baba's feet with staff at that time. Mm-hmm. I was on the floor in front of Baba's seat in front of all the women. And John Roger told me it was at that moment that Muktananda passed the karma he was holding for me as my master to John Roger because it was foreordained and it happened at that moment. And you saw saw it? Yes. Beforehand? Yes. And and so within a week or two, I, I was... And Jr. said, look, it's not loyalty to Baba or me. It's loyalty to your own soul. So it's your awareness of what your next steps are and your soul will tell you. Yeah. And it, it showed me John Roger. Yeah. <laughs> and I tell you in all these years, I, I've just, I still am in wonder and awe at the gift my life has given me in working with him inwardly, yeah. spiritually, and it never ends. It's a never-ending, it's the great eternally traveling consciousness. It just mm-hmm. never ends. Truly, truly. And and that's, that's an incredible story. I mean, a lot of incredible stories. Um, I... Like I said in the beginning, I really enjoy stories, and so this has been a, this has been a real pleasure. And 
Um, I feel, unless there's something else you'd like to share, I feel that this is like the perfect place to like bring this, uh, this storytelling session to a close and, and maybe we can do it again. So can I just yeah, say, go, something? Go, say something? I just want to say to everybody out there who's listening, um, my favorite words to say uh, is I love you. I know of no better words to say. So thank you, Lee. And on that note, I love you all too. Thank you for listening and look forward to, uh, to having you listen to something again next time, whatever that happens to be. God bless you all. <laughs>